Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To fairest looks, trust not too far, nor yet to beauty brave. For hateful thoughts so finely masked, their deadly poisons have. Love's charmed cups, the subtle dame doth to her husband fill, and causeth him, with cruel hand, his children's blood to spill. The General History of the Turks by Richard Knowles, 1603. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.6, Roxelana, Revolutionary Monogamy. Last time, we saw a young orphan trapped in a concubine's life at the court of a retired emperor. Despite being of noble birth, her straitened circumstances forced her to serve him and his friends with her body for many years, but she didn't take it lying down. Her various affairs and blatant disdain for the court saw her eventually expelled, allowing her to live the religious life she had always wanted. Today, we travel west and forward a couple of centuries to the glory years of the Ottoman Empire, and the life of a woman sold into slavery who rose to the very top, beginning an era known to history as the Sultanate of Women. So far in this series, we've seen mistresses and concubines, and of course, throughout this podcast, we've seen many wives. But today is our first journey into a harem, a vicious, competitive melting pot of women all striving and competing to reach the top and give themselves and their children the best lives they could. The word harem conjures up all sorts of thoughts and preconceptions, ones that have made it into countless numbers of books and TV shows. Sensual concubines, oversexed sultans, and bitter eunuchs that really ran the show. It's been portrayed as an unstoppable orgy of on-tap sex and non-stop pleasure. And while this isn't exactly untrue, the actual game at play in Imperial Harems was not sex, it was power. It was a game of thrones, or more specifically, 
a game for the throne, and for the attention of the man who sat in it. And Roxolana, as we'll see over the next few episodes, played it better than any other woman in Ottoman history. At the start of this fifth season of the podcast, I said that this season on history's other women would not cover women who started off as mistresses or concubines, but later married their lover and became their principal wife. As I said in episode 5.1, I think those women fall into a slightly different category from those that I want to cover in this season. I did say, though, that there would be one exception, and Roxlana is that one. No discussion of mistresses throughout history would be complete without covering the imperial harem of the Ottoman Empire. It's just too iconic. But none of the concubines that I looked at that did not become empresses in the Ottoman Empire had enough sources for me to cover properly. And Roxolana is just too good an example to pass up. All rules are there to be broken, and I am happy to do so for such a fascinating subject as Roxolana. To quote a recent government minister from my own country, I am breaking the rules, but in a limited and specific way. And unlike him, I'm not breaching international law to do it. I trust you will forgive me. A group of people that I am sure will let me off the hook are my amazing patrons who keep this show going with their support on Patreon. I could not do this podcast without them. It's thanks to their generosity that it's still going free for everyone forever. If you would like to become one of my patrons, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post maps, pictures and other bonus content from the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, had been built to be the new Rome. And like the Eternal City, it is built on seven hills. On the third hill stands the vast mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent. For nearly 500 years, it has commanded the gaze of onlookers. It is a colossal thing to behold. The largest mosque in the city up until 2019 and almost demands the reverence and solemnity of the hordes of tourists and pilgrims that visit. And if you do go there, once you've been inside and admired the windows and many domes, head behind the Qibla wall to admire the mausoleums. Beside the great octagonal tomb of Suleiman himself stands a smaller, more modest structure. It is decorated with ornate Isnic tiles depicting the Garden of Eden, Inside stands the grave of Roxolana, empress of the Ottoman Empire, the final resting place of a woman who rose from the bottom of the pile to reach the very top. It's become something of a theme so far in this series that we've known very little about the early life of any of the women we've covered. 
We've generally not known their date of birth or much about their parents. Roxolana, though, takes things a step further, as we not only do not know where she was born, we don't even know her nationality. Some have claimed that she was from Italy, others say France. But the most plausible claim is from a region called Ruthenia. Today, it forms part of western Ukraine. But in the early 16th century, it was under the control of the Kingdom of Poland. The town of Rohatin, about 50 miles southeast of Lviv, has laid claim to her, erecting a bronze statue to her memory in 1999. This has a somewhat loose basis in history, but it's the best we've got. Roxelana isn't even her real name, at least not her original one. Polish tradition has it that she was born as Aleksandra Lizowska, but this isn't backed up in any official record. As we'll see, she would have many names throughout her life, but the one most commonly used now, Roxelana, was a nickname. It meant the Russian woman. So how did a girl from Ruthenia end up in the harem of the Ottoman Sultan? Well, it wasn't by choice. This region of Eastern Europe had been ravaged by war and raiding for centuries. In years past, Mongol armies had swept across the land, killing, burning and enslaving as they went. The great empire formed by the armies of Chinggis Khan and his descendants had long since fragmented. Some parts were reconquered by Christian and Muslim rulers, while others formed rump states called Khanates that bore a passing resemblance to their Mongol past, but that had assimilated aspects of the native culture of the people they had conquered. One of these was the Crimean Khanate, a new Islamic kingdom that ruled a region that contained the Crimean Peninsula and a lot of Ukrainian territory that is currently occupied by Russian forces. Their economy was based on cattle herding and slaving. The business model was simple. The Crimean Tatars would send raiding parties north and capture and attack towns and villages. They would loot anything of value, burn everything to the ground, enslave those they wanted and kill the rest. They largely did this in the winter months, when the ground was hard and the rivers frozen solid, allowing their horsemen to travel great distances at speed. They would capture tens of thousands of people in each of these expeditions. This was such a dispiritingly common practice that it found its way into folk songs and sayings that still survive to this day. One of which is, quote, Oh, how much better to lie on one's beer than to be a captive on the way to Tartary. These enslaved people would be marched across the freezing steppes to the port of Kaffa, modern Theodosia, in southeastern Crimea. It was a brutal journey in appalling conditions. Many fell by the wayside and were left to die. Those lucky, or perhaps unlucky enough, to survive the journey will probably find themselves at the city's slave market. There they will be sold to a dealer in large lots. The Tatars weren't really salesmen, they were the hunters. They would then go on their way, probably to capture more slaves. These dealers would then sort their slaves into groups sorted by criteria such as age, look, strength and aptitude. There was no space for pity here. The 17th century traveller Evelia Chalebi describes one such market this way, quote, A man who has not seen this market has seen nothing in this world. There a mother is severed from her son and daughter, a son from his father and brother, and they are sold among lamentations, cries of help, weeping and sorrow. 
Some of these slaves would be then bought directly at the market, while others would be shipped across the Black Sea to foreign slave markets. Roxolana was one of the hundreds of thousands of people trapped in this appalling trade, caught in an expedition mounted in 1516 when she was about 13 years old. We don't know if she was the only one in her family to be captured, but if there were others, she would never see them again. She survived the savage slave march to Kaffa and was shipped across the Black Sea to Istanbul. From there, she was taken to the Women's Bazaar, a slave market, where she was sold to the highest bidder. She would have been treated like an animal, examined for her looks, talents and physique. Buyers looked for slaves to do all sorts of jobs, from cooking and cleaning to scribes, and of course, to join a harem. French writer Gérard de Naval describes visiting a market like this in his book Voyage to the Orient. Quote, the merchants were ready to have the women strip. They poked open their mouths so that I could examine their teeth. They made them walk up and down and pointed out, above all, the elasticity of their breasts. For prospective residents of the imperial harem, though, beauty was only one of the prerequisites. Indeed, Roxlana was not especially renowned for her beauty. The sultan's concubines had to be virgins, for all the many horrors on the long slave march, she would have been unmolested, and they had to be in good physical condition. They were expected to bear their master's sons, after all. But another prize trait was intelligence. Concubines raised their own children, and were expected to bring them up to survive and thrive in the cutthroat world of the palace. They would not survive long if their teacher was a bit dim. After being subjected to this demeaning spectacle, Roxana was bought by... well, we're not sure. But the most likely person is Ibrahim Pasha, a close friend of the man who was soon to become the new Ottoman Sultan, Crown Prince Suleiman. It was pretty common for slaves to be bought and then sent as gifts to powerful men, as a way of currying favour. Roxana may have been sent straight to the Imperial Palace... Equally, she could have spent time in her purchase's household to be trained in her new role. Whichever it was, when she entered the palace, she was once more subjected to a physical inspection, this time by a trained eunuch who would ensure that she was suitable and as promised. Only then would she enter the harem. To all intents and purposes, this would be a rebirth for her into a strange new world. She would have been forcibly converted to Islam, her name taken from her, and she would have learned to speak Turkish and Arabic if she hadn't already done so. She would have been taught the proper etiquette and protocol of the palace, how to carry herself, how to dress, when to bow, when to avert her gaze, whose hand to kiss, and whom she was not allowed to address, when to speak, and when to remain silent. She was expected to be able to dance seductively, play musical instruments, and of course, master the erotic arts. These women were far from the mindless sex slaves of certain fevered imaginations. They were enslaved, yes, but their talents went far beyond the bedroom, and these skills were honed and perfected over time. It was an arduous process, designed to only allow the most talented to emerge. Her life was contained almost entirely within the walls of the old palace. As the name suggests, This grand building was the former home of the Ottoman sultans, who had since moved on to the imaginatively named New Palace. Separated from the rest of the men who lived and worked in the New Palace, 
the old palace offered opportunities for women to rise into influential positions. At the top of the tree was the sultan's mother, Hafsa. She had formerly been a slave concubine herself, forced down a path very similar to that of Roxolana. She was a significant figure in her son's life, and a figure of some reverence. Next was the lady steward, Gulfem, who acted as Hafsa chief of staff and dealt with most of the day-to-day operations of the palace. Working for them was a legion of female officials who keep the worlds in motion and supervise the training of the slaves, like Roxolana. These were mostly women that had failed to win the attention of the sultan and therefore been thrust into a different kind of career. Below the emperor's mother were the concubine mothers. These were the women, lucky enough, if again that is the right word, to have borne the sultan's children. Once a concubine had produced a son, that was the end of their sexual relationship, as none were permitted to have more than one son. This was because each was considered a potential heir to the throne, and thus needed their mother's undivided attention. Daughters didn't count towards this. A concubine mother of daughters would continue to sleep with the sultan until either he tired of her, or she produced a healthy son. At this time, there were four concubine mothers, but only one, Mahidevran, had produced a son that still lived, who was Mustafa, who had been born while Suleiman was still the crown prince. Below them were, well, the rest. Slaves that had been transported and sold to the palace. Recruits that showed promise could rise to more prominent positions, acting as ladies' maids to their royal mistresses. Those that disappointed would become domestic servants, fetching, carrying, and doing menial tasks. The only men in the old palace were the eunuchs, who acted as supervisors, guardians, and muscle. The exception to this was, of course, the sultan, who would regularly visit to meet with his mother and enjoy the pleasures of his concubines. Sometimes he would sleep with one of his established concubines, but other times he might seek out someone new. Legend has it that he would line them all up and drop his handkerchief in front of the one that tickled his fancy, but that theory has its doubters. More likely, things would have been somewhat more informal. His mother or some other senior official would organise a little soiree, while the aspiring concubines competed for his attention by serving refreshments, singing and dancing. It was at one of these events that Roxolana first caught the sultan's eye. However she felt about the path that she had been thrust onto, she was determined to make a success of her life, and her route lay at the side of a man at the top of the system that had enslaved her. The competition was fierce for his attention, so winning it was no small achievement. But that was only the first step. Now that she had it, she had to keep his eye long enough to achieve motherhood. That was the ultimate test. She would have been invited to the new palace, carried there down the avenue of the divan in an ornate carriage, shrouded from view and protected by guards. There she would have been taken to the Hall of Maidens, which housed the sultan's current favourites within easy reach. She would be washed, dressed, and then summoned to join him in his chamber. She was the first new concubine to have been chosen since Suleiman had become emperor. What no one knew then is that she would also be the last.
Suleiman was not born with any expectation of ruling the empire. His father, Salim, was not the favoured child of his and had been sent to be governor of Kaffa. From there, he orchestrated a civil war against his father and brothers that saw him become the new sultan. His son, Suleiman, was put in command of the capital during the civil war and afterwards gained rulership experience as the governor of an eastern province, as well again in the capital while his father fought various wars. Because of this, he didn't have much military experience when he succeeded his father in 1520. But his father had given him the best education in the workings of government that any heir could possibly hope to have. Suleiman had inherited an expanded empire, widely considered to be experiencing its golden age. For Roxelana, there was no guarantee that this first encounter with Suleiman was the start of a new life for her. She could have been dismissed after one night if she didn't meet his standards. He had a whole palace full of women to choose from. She had a lot to do to remain on top of the pile. Whatever she did, and of course this all happened behind closed doors, she did it very well, for she held his affections for long enough for her to become pregnant and produce a son, Mehmed. He was the first heir born to the purple, and was welcomed with cannon fire and much rejoicing. His birth instantly changed Roxolana's life. As the mother of the sultan's son, she had new legal rights. She was not freed, that would only happen after her husband's death, but she could be no longer sold or gifted away. She also rose in status. The Venetian Giovanni Maria Angelello observed that, quote, When one of the maidens becomes pregnant by the sultan, she is elevated above the others and is served as a lady. She received a generous stipend to spend on herself and her son and moved to new apartments in the old palace, where she would have returned to much acclaim, her life having been changed forever. Though most of the heavy lifting of motherhood would have been carried out by wet nurses and other maids, Roxana was a constant in Mehmed's life from day one, far more involved as a mother than her Western contemporaries. Ottoman princes rarely saw their fathers. They were usually off on campaign or busy in the council chamber, or indeed the harem. Their mothers, by contrast, were a constant presence, their protectors and their teachers. This had been the way for centuries, but Roxelana was about to break this cycle. For she was not done with the sultan, not content to be another notch on his bedpost. She wanted all of his attention and all of his children. She was about to launch a revolution through monogamy. How she managed this is a question that has vexed historians and indeed contemporaries for centuries. Suleiman needed sons. Even by 16th century standards, the Ottoman court was dangerous, so two, which he had at the moment, was not considered enough. He had previously had a few more sons, but a plague outbreak had carried them off. Confining himself to just one woman was not an especially efficient way of producing those sons. That was the rationale behind the harem system. But Roxolana managed to do something, or indeed many things, to encourage him to break with tradition. It may have been something as simple as love, a hopeless infatuation. This can't be ruled out. Perhaps it was a case of simplifying his life, focusing his attention on one woman, a provenly fertile one at that, 
with whom he had a rapport rather than having to initiate other people. It could well have been down to Roxana's own skill. She would have been loath to see her influence diminish and see another woman take her place in the Sultan's bed. Thrust into this great game of sex and relationships, she managed to play a trump card she was playing to win. But perhaps the answer came from Suleiman's own past. As I've said, his father, Selim, had taken the throne in an orgy of violence, overthrowing his father, defeating his older brothers in battle, and having them and their sons killed, along with basically any male in the family that could conceivably challenge him. The concubine system meant that there were an awful lot of them, and that meant a veritable ocean of blood being spilt, and securing both Selim and his son in control of the empire. And this was not particularly unusual, either in the Ottoman Empire or in its neighbours. Indeed, the Mongol Empire offered a chilling lesson in what happened if you had too many living sons. Fragmentation and decay were but a bout of passion away. The secrecy of the harem meant that all we have, though, is speculation. What we do know, though, is that this was not a popular decision. Old habits die hard, and many that had grown up in a certain social order were not keen to see it broken. In her biography of Roxelana, historian Leslie Pierce writes, quote, Subjects of the Ottoman Empire grasped the point that a prince should not share his mother with another prince, that his mother was both his ally and the sultan's check on his son's loyalty. The widespread European practice of primogeniture, no doubt, seemed to them both unjust and unwise. There was the belief that casting sons of the reigning monarch as rivals would demonstrate who was best able to rally a loyal following and win the backing of the military, thus the best candidate to succeed his father. To the public, it must have seemed dangerous to tamper with a formula that had yielded a stellar selection of strong monarchs. Suleiman's officials and nobles continued to send him female slaves as gifts, hoping perhaps to entice him away from Roxelana, but to no avail. This led to some extraordinary scenes. The Venetian ambassador relates one such occasion in his report back to his city. And just to note, when he refers to the sultan's second wife, he means Roxelana. Quote, The sultan was given two beautiful Russian maidens by a provincial governor, one for his mother and one for him. When they arrived at the palace, his second wife, whom he esteems at present, became extremely unhappy and flung herself to the ground weeping. The mother, who had given her maiden to the sultan, was sorry about what she had done, took her back and sent her to one of the governors as a wife, and the sultan agreed to send his to another governor, because his wife would have perished from sorrow if these maidens had remained in the palace. There is certainly an element of performance in occasions like this. This may have been a way for the Sultan to maintain his proud masculine virility while turning down the affections of buxom young slave wives. But for Roxelana, these were very real threats to her position, and she was willing to fight tooth and nail to remain at the top. It didn't help that for the next few years, she and Suleiman rarely saw each other for long. He was constantly away on campaign, while she was in and out of pregnancy. Joining their first son, Mehmed, came a daughter, Miruma, and then four more sons, Selim, Abdullah, Bayezid, and Chihungir. Abdullah sadly died as a toddler, 
while Chihunga was born with a shoulder disability. But still, Roxolana had done her duty, and provided heirs a plenty to succeed to the empire, doing the work of half a dozen concubine wives. But those children were still young, and if Suleiman were to die on campaign, they would not be the favourites to succeed to the throne. The sultan still had one surviving son from a previous concubine, and while he was of age, her children were not. This meant that he, not them, would be in the best position to inherit. And if he did, her life, and that of her children, would likely be cut very short. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.